Welcome everyone, this is Anthony Hansen with the University of Minnesota's IPM podcast series for field crops. Today we have a special episode for everyone, a bit of a bonus episode so to say. Throughout this winter we had a special series called the Strategic Farming Let's Talk Crops webinars. And these were a series of webinars put together every week, sponsored by the Minnesota Corn and Soybean Growers Associations, where different researchers and educators would discuss different topics for about 10 minutes of research they've had ongoing. And then they would field questions from growers and other ag professionals for the remainder of the time for at least about 20 minutes. So it was a good opportunity for growers to actually come and ask questions from across the state. On March 3rd, we had an episode especially related to IPM talking about corn insects or what's bugging your corn in 2021. In about the first 15 minutes, both Dr. Ken Osley and Bruce Potter discuss some of the current research that's been ongoing in about the last year. After that, so people were pretty interested in what was going on in the corn world when it comes to insects lately. This is the time of year when you're often sitting in the tractor wondering how the crop is going to do this year. Sometimes you don't want to worry about that as much or think about it, but that's going to cross your mind at one point or another. So this will help you think about a little bit what might be happening or what you might want to expect. So let's tune in to hear what both Dr. Ken Osley and Bruce Potter had to say about that. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Um, the focus today is on uh, what's bugging us in terms of corn insects. It seems pleasantly distant ago that we were seeing scenes like this with uh, more cold, brutal weather, and it probably has you thinking up excitement of seeing spring come, wondering what the cold did with insects. And so Bruce and I are going to share some different dimensions of that um, as we go through the next few minutes here. When we're thinking about prospective insect problems, it's important um, to keep in mind that, the, that we have five categories of insects out there that are pests. We have locals. These are um, primarily pests that are residing here. Um, they overwinter here. And in general, they're fairly well adapted to the situation that we have in Minnesota. And in general, uh, brief periods of cold weather like we had this year are not a big challenge to them. What we're going to see next uh, summer potentially is just carryover from 2020 and what that ramifications that has as modified by weather in our cropping situation. We have opportunists that are weather related. Think of insects that are more problematic during drought. Uh, we have migrants, and these can't overwinter here. They come from more southern locales, and because of the way the jet stream sets up, et cetera, and the long-distance transport involved with these insects, we very seldomly know exactly what we're going to be getting, and so every year is kind of a surprise that way. Then we have adapters, and these are changing to practices, um, for example, uh, reduced tillage, uh, increased use of cover crops, for example, um, are changing the insect community that does best under those conditions. 
And then finally, we have invasive insects, whether we're talking brown marmorated stink bugs or Japanese beetles or um, a soybean midge. So, you know, there, there's lots of change every year. And that's one of the things that is uh, very interesting working in Minnesota on corn insects. And I'd have to say that I haven't been bored in the 35 years that I've been working here. As we think about where the insects attacking corn, they come with a variety of targets that the insects um, are focused on. In general, the last few years, we've had very little in terms of stand reducers. The uh, neonicotinoid seed treatments are doing a fairly good job on most of these um, in corn. We also have our our key pests, the ones that we historically have considered managing in most years, and that's European corn borer and corn rootworms. But of course, we know for the last 20 plus years, European corn borer has not been a significant issue. The last four, five years, up until 2020, uh, corn rootworm populations had diminished. Um, Thinking about all these insects in terms of the five categories, we've got the migrants here are things like armyworm, fall armyworm, um, the cutworms, corn earworm, um, and we have new invasives such as um, brown marmorated stink bug, the Japanese beetle, for example. We have um, opportunists, and so some of those that we have dealt with in drought years include grasshoppers and uh, spider mites. Um, so there's a variety of things that can be affecting the crop this year. I'm going to focus a little bit on what's our remaining key insect pest, which is corn rootworms. Bt resistance continues to develop. Um, weather management have reduced populations over the last few years. However, conditions were extremely favorable in 2020, and we saw populations build. Um, and if you think of the seasonal play of what's going on with corn rootworms, um, we're in that winter survival period right now where the eggs are out there in the soil, and we'll see what the outcome of this temperature, um, cold temperature regime this year will be like. Then in the spring, when those eggs hatch, there's a period where they, that they're very susceptible to conditions, and that is when they're trying to find a root and get established in a root system. At that point, things like spring rainfall, the timing of planting can have big impacts on rootworm populations. Then they go through a larval competition period, and then finally, when the adults come out, you have weather that is eventually, uh, potentially affecting egg laying. So think of this, when you think of this cycle, think about what's happened in the, over the last year. In the fall of 2019, we had excellent conditions for egg laying. Uh, pot, adults were able to persist in the field a fairly long time under mild conditions, been a very mild winter. Um, and then in the spring, in pre contest to previous years, we didn't have as many inundative rainfalls. So we had and early planting as well, or more timely planting. And uh, between those two things, uh, colonization was very successful 
And as a result, we saw a dramatic increase in adult populations and good egg laying conditions last fall. So all that sets the stage for an increase in corn rootworm um, pressure this year. Um, how well, the big question of course is how are the winter conditions going to affect things? It's well known that certain temperatures are very uh, catastrophic to corn rootworm eggs. However, they are laid in the soil and typically covered by some layer of snow, which acts as an insulating blanket. So the environment that eggs are actually experiencing is dramatically different from air temp. And this was Eric Lawson did this work and reported in his thesis in 1986 uh, from Iowa State University. And basically he found that winter mortality in Western corn rootworm was lin linearly related to the amount of cold that those eggs experienced below freezing temperatures. And uh, you may wonder, you know, in the past what's happened, we had a severe impact on corn rootworms in 1976 to 1977 and from 2013 to 2014 winters. And you can see there that the soil temperatures are dropping into the negative teens and even some cases approaching negative 20. And in the next year, they're following this kind of winter, there was this dramatic in decrease in Western corn rootworm populations. Basically though, Northern corn rootworms adapted here, as opposed to moving up from the southwestern part of the United States. And so they're much more winter hardy than the westerns are. So that sets the stage for what we're seeing this year. And I just grabbed some data from Wasika to illustrate the importance of snow cover. That air temperature got down to an average of minus 15 at one point in February. Uh, but if you look at soil temps, um, you see that they're relatively stable and only dipping a little bit below freezing. And you may wonder how in the world that can occur. And it's because there was a six to 12 inch layer of snow um, during this time period. And of course, we know fields don't necessarily keep the snow that's landed on them as it blows around in Western Minnesota, for example. So it all depends on what kind of snow cover is in the field or parts of the field when the temperatures get low. One of the challenges we've got in management, of course, is status of resistance. And what's changed over the last few years has been that Northern corn rootworms have now developed resistance to BT traits and it's been verified in North Dakota and Minnesota. We're seeing increasing issues with smart stack and chrome under the heavier pressure that developed in 2020. We know that uh, reports of performance issues also increased during that time period. The challenge with rootworms is always getting a handle on what's going on in the field. This is particularly difficult when you've got land, rental land changing uh, hands and um, if you haven't actually been able to get out in fields and take a look at populations. So, you know, we're always encouraging scouting. What's new with traits? Um, we now have SmartStacks Pro available uh, that's now been approved in Europe. And so it's a 
potentially available for growers as an option if they've got increasing issues with SmartStack or Chrome. We know that on the insecticide front, we're, we have some other options. Aztec is a higher concentration granule. If you don't have smart blocks, boxes looking at liquid systems, um, Index and Ampex are two newer options. Um, I think Ampex at this point doesn't have a full label, but it's one of the products that we've been looking at. The challenge, of course, is just managing the crop budget. Fortunately, it looks like prices for this fall are anticipated to increase, and that's going to take some of the burden off. Uh, but it's still wise to take a look at what your inputs are and are you balancing risk versus the cost of uh, essentially insurance to you. Well, that ends my portion of it. And I think that uh, Bruce has some things he would like to share. Thank you, Ken. And Bruce, to lead you off, I know we had one question at registration that might uh, play into a little bit what you'll talk about. Uh, one question was, can one predict if or when conventional corn would cease to be a money-saving management decision on a farm? All right, so um, basically uh, the longer you've had a field in corn, the greater the potential for um, increasing particular insect problems. And, and uh, one of those would be uh, European corn borer. Ken mentioned corn rootworms. So I guess the, the only way to know for sh uh, to have a good feeling on, on how things were, are progressing is to do some good scouting. In the case of European corn borer, uh, we do a fall survey. Uh, Dr. Bill Hutchinson's uh, lab uh, leads this and it's funded by the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. Before BT was adopted, you can see some pretty high populations. They're cyclical, of course. And uh, in 20, uh, the last three years, 2018 through 2020, those populations are lower. Um, these are general observations. They're, they're particular fields that, that are economic in all these, all these uh, years, uh, but they're definitely the overall populations are down. And based on the fall survey, it looks like damage is maybe a little bit down from, from uh, 2019. But the interesting thing we picked up on the survey this year, Anthony, was that um, we're, we're finding fields, particularly in West Central and Southwest Minnesota, where we had tunnels, but didn't have any uh, overwintering larvae in them. So I'm not sure if that's because of disease or, not, uh, or, or another factor. So basically, uh, you know, if, if a lot of guys are starting to go because of corn rootworm is the big driver, starting to go through a to a different rotation and they're um, where they can, they're throwing a year of soybeans in that corn to knock, uh, knock corn borers back or, or corn rootworm back. And it's also knocking corn borers back in those fields as well. The difference between Something like a corn rootworm, a European corn borer, is the corn borers will move between fields, so it's more of an area problem. And corn rootworms, uh, Ken, I think will agree with this, are, are very field specific. I'm going to go with a couple of questions we're getting in chat right now. They're wondering about the geographic range of corn rootworm. What is that in the state, and are they capable of causing injury in northwest Minnesota? Well, historically, you know, you had populations getting up as far as 
the Fargo-Moorhead area, but in general, that was fairly low and infrequent um, percentage of fields uh, that would have a problem up that high. However, the amount of corn on corn has increased significantly. And um, with kind of like warmer seasonal temperatures um, in general, um, there's certainly the potential for Western corn rootworm to increase at higher levels as we go farther north. And I think Northern corn rootworms, you can regard as kind of local. They're, they're here, they can handle the temperature, soil temperatures. So are we gonna see more problems? I think, you know, from a weather perspective, that could certainly increase. We know we're getting a little more variability in terms of, you know, winter temperatures, but in general, um, with the milder trends increasing, this could be a more prevalent issue as we go north. Thanks, Ken. Uh, another question from the chat is Western corn rootworm specifically has been capable of overcoming broadcast insecticides, DT rotation fairly quickly. And how likely and quickly will they be able to overcome RNAi? So our RNAi is kind of unique in the sense that uh, corn rootworms have never seen anything like that. And the, the particular pathway that they're trying to disrupt in RNAi is fairly specific to um, to corn rootworms and in fact, mainly the economic threatening corn rootworms. So think of it this way, there are other wild species of diabrotic out there. Um, they have found that uh, they have gotten some colony development of resistance. Um, and that's one of the reasons you see the RNAi added to our most effective blend of individual traits right now, which would be smart stacks. Um, and so they're trying to buffer things and, and give it as long a product life as it can. Um, but depending on the amount of selection pressure that is exerted, um, we're gonna see potential for resistance to develop, but the odds are not high immediately. All right, we have two related questions. One is asking about the increasing popularity of no-till, and the other is asking about the increasing prevalence of cover crops. And both are wondering how that affects both pests and changes in their control. Bruce, you wanna take a first stab at that one? Well, no-till, what, what no-till does is it leaves uh, more residue on the surface. It's probably keeping those temperatures a little more moderate. It's allowing uh, probably a few uh, more opportunities for insects to overwinter in the field. Cover crops uh, are kind of a uh, something that insects in Minnesota aren't very used to. Um, and when we look at uh, particular issues, winter rye covers in corn, uh, we know are attractive to, uh, to migrating true armyworms. So that's something people really need to be be looking for if, they, if they're in that situation. Probably a little more attractive to black cutworms coming in as well because there's additional weed growth early in the spring that's not taken out with tillage. 
The other thing that we can see happening with cover crops is, and I'm a little concerned about it in, in dry years, is that we've got a, a perennial uh, species out there in these cornfields and it's giving spider mites an opportunity to winter right in the cornfield on that rye. If, uh, they're, if they're able to move to corn before that cover crop is, is removed or if the cover crop is left in there too long uh, before it's terminated, uh, they've got an opportunity to move right to corn within the field instead of having to uh, move off the field edges. So I think those are some of the bigger uh, bigger issues with cover crops. In a lot of cases, we just don't know. Uh, a little bit, little bit unpredictable right now, but definitely uh, there's a potential for some some additional insect problems we're not used to seeing in corn related to cover crops. All right, we have another question from David Reynolds. Are smart stack hybrids keeping up with pests? He says it seems a fair amount of producers are planting conventional hybrids. Well, cer certainly the amount of con conventional corn has increased uh, over the last four or five years in response to the budget situations growers are facing. But that's kind of a separate issue from our smart stacks keeping up with pest issues. And I think on, on the BT above ground dimension, there's now been you know, established resistance of a number of the caterpillar species uh, to the proteins found in smart stacks. Um, fortunately for us, those are all migratory and tend to arrive later in the season. So they're not a big threat for corn producers in Minnesota, um, other than if we have late planted corn, for example. A little closer to home, Western bean cutworm has developed uh, resistance to one of the cry proteins found up here. And in the maritime provinces, European corn borer out there has developed resistance to some of the BT traits as well. So, you know, it's, it's a changing environment out there. And, you know, whether we're talking rootworms or we're talking BT traits against caterpillars, we're seeing continued use and continued selection pressures leading to more cases of resistance. Blake Carlson asks, is it possible that chopping corn heads on combines have helped reduce European corn borer populations compared to what we saw back in the 1990s? Well, it's certainly not helping them any. It, even even uh, in the older literature, there's some documentation that, that tillage can kind of help uh, reduce corn borer by getting those lar overwintering larvae in a, in a bad uh, spot. But the thing to remember about European corn borer is that they're able to move between fields and there's certain stages of corn that they prefer. And what you do in one field maybe helps that field to a certain extent, but it's the surrounding fields that are uh, an issue. And if we're looking at overwintering populations, um, and where, where these corn, example, corn borer populations build up. It's in areas where they've used and uh, haven't had the BT above ground traits. And it's kind of a widespread practice in the area and they've done it over a number of years. And that's where we see those populations coming back. Thanks, Bruce. Anonymous asks, what percent of growers use planter insecticide treatments? That's a, that's a good question. I don't have any recent data on that. Bruce, what's your thinking? 
Well, I don't, I don't really know. It's more of it, and I get, we get a lot of questions on it. Some guys are trying to stick with dry. Some guys are switching to liquids. But uh, I, think, I think as we've seen the uh, BT traits fail, and there was quite a few of those last year, Ken, um, yeah. the interest goes up. And, and uh, you know, we're seeing some, some even, even some research results now where we're getting an economic benefit for, for adding a layer of insecticide over, over the stack. So I think that's going to increase this year, and we'll see what happens uh, with new traits and, and developments in corn hybrids down the road. Anthony, I'd like to add a little more to what Bruce was saying on, on the layering issue. The, I certainly agree with what Bruce said. The, the challenge in all of this is knowing kind of what level of resistance you're facing in your fields. Um, and if you're relying on yield data to tip you off or if you're relying purely on lodging, you're, you're behind the game. By the time it, resistance issues become so noticeable there that you're starting to contemplate a soil insecticide or a switch in BT traits, at that point, the field's already producing so many beetles. Um, for example, the, the reportable criteria in EPA for reporting a field failure to a company is, is half a node with some of the pyramids right now. And at that point, you're already producing over 250,000 beetles per acre. And those are beetles with resistance traits that are spreading through the community. Um, so they may be ending up in your sowing, you know, other fields you have and sowing your neighbors' uh, fields with higher levels of resistance. The insecticides won't change that. Um, they're, they're an independent mortality factor. And I'd say most of the time in our trials, we only see about 60% reduction in populations with an insecticide. So the insecticides often by themselves are considered lodging insurance rather than you know, a kill approach to a population. You want the kill approach, rotate. Yeah. Some of these fields, Ken, are, are to the point that they don't really have any choice anymore. So, um, but again, it goes back to that earlier question on, on how do you know when, you, when you've got too much continuous corn and the only way to do is, is scout and look in the case of rootworms, look for beetles case of, you know, corn borer, things like corn borer or cutworms do the scouting in season. We have another question from Bill Stangle. He asks, during state surveys, are conventional fields specifically targeted to look for European corn borer? And he also asks uh, whether northern corn rootworm has been able to overcome BT compared to western corn rootworm. On the corn borer, are you talking about surveys for corn borer? It looks like it, yeah. So yeah, um, and, and we've done we've done that in the past, uh, but but part of that survey to be maintain continuity, it's it's random fields as well. You might suspect that if you're going to find a corn borer in that survey, it's going to be in a in a non BT field. Ken, you want to address uh, the corn rootworm part? Sure. The um, on corn rootworm, it's pretty common observation among 
on ag professionals that are out looking at fields that uh, we're seeing more northern corn rootworms out there. Um, and that kind of reinforces, you know, what they've been seeing over a longer period in uh, Wisconsin. Um, in terms of the fields that have been reported to us where sticky traps are being monitored, for example, um, there are definitely fields that appear to have, you know, elevated northern corn rootworm levels, which is very remarkable considering it was only three years ago that I had ag professionals coming up, or four years ago, that I had ag professionals coming up to me and asking, where are the northern corn rootworms? Because they were seeing hardly any out there. And so something has definitely changed in their favor. Um, and you can have a discussion about, you know, whether that's a result of starting to see BT resistance developing in the population, and that's why we're seeing more of them. Or reducing competition from Westerns is another, you know, potential benefit of the colder winter we had like in 2013 and 14. Whatever the reason, there's definitely more Northerns out there, and we're seeing kind of a general uptick in populations of concern in terms of how many corn rootworm beetles are out in fields. All right, we have another question from Ryan Hagedorn. He was asking, he uses capture and furrow and conventional corn, and he also has a corn-soybean rotation for all of his fields. Have you seen any issues coming up with capture, or are there any other insecticide options we should be considering? I'll take first stab, and I know Bruce has some data that he might wish to share results from as well. Um, but in our in our trials, when pressure builds, capture um, performance declines, and it's in some of the trial sites where we're deliberately going for high level subpopulation, we do see, you know, performance issues with, with some of the uh, less effective uh, liquids. Um, in terms of other products right now, uh, we're seeing good performance with Force Evo and with two newer products, Index, with index, let me take a quick look here, Ampex. And I don't think Ampex is a full label yet. Um, and I know that index is a fairly hot product because it's an organophosphate pyrethroid blend. Um, so there would be some handling, you know, precautions that uh, growers would need to take. But there are some liquid options that are looking fairly good out there um, that would give capture a run for its money or exceed its performance. Bruce, what, is, what have you been seeing? No, I think I, I agree with that, Ken. And at, at, at Lamberton this year with some pretty horrific rootworm pressure, um, and, I, and I think it was a part, partially due with when the rootworm egg hatch occurred versus corn planting and, and the summer weather, but none of the liquids looked very good this year. But even at that, they kind of followed that same uh, uh, order that, that you described with the uh, uh, index and, and force evil on top and then declining from there. Yeah, one of the other things to, 
that I think everyone should consider is that when looking at performance and, uh, you know, stability of that performance, the granular products tend to do the best. And then they overlap with the liquids, which are a little poor in performance. And then that liquid spectrum, like Bruce and I have been talking, you have captures is on the less effective end of the liquids. And then you move into the seed treatments. And the seed treatments are the first to fall apart, even if you've got a 1250 rate out there. And a 500, in most cases, only offers minor suppression. And a 250 really offers very little protection. All right, for another question, this is from Rusty. Can we use natural enemies to handle corn rootworm or other corn pests? On the corn rootworm side, I think that actually still is happening. In fact, when we before BT, when we had higher corn borer populations, we'd have um, kind of a cyclic, cyclical um, nature to the, to the outbreak. So we'd have a few years uh, with low populations. They'd build up and, 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 and then decline again. And one of the reasons for that uh, is believed to be uh, natural enemies, Bavaria, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, when we do our fall sor- surveys for corn borer, we're also looking for uh, uh, parasitism. And that, even with the lower corn borer populations that we have right now, that seems still be, to still be working. So uh, in the case of corn borer, um, you know, they're still still at least uh, somewhat effective at suppressing populations. And then Ken, you might want to talk about nematodes and corn rootworm. Yeah, so on, uh, on the corn rootworm front, um, the single most vulnerable point for rootworms is just egg hatch to establishment. And there's a tremendous amount of mortality that occurs through that phase. Over the years, there's been a lot of incidental work done with various pathogens, Bovaria, for example, like Bruce mentioned, um, also. And Nocema. Yeah. And uh, there's also been work done with nematodes. And interestingly enough, the, the nematodes could be extremely effective in inundative rates. If you put out a huge bunch of them, you got good control. The trouble is the application timing was as the corn was approaching tasseling. So, so it was kind of impractical. Um, however, um, Elson Shields in New York has looked at a different species and the idea of an inoculative release where you just put out enough to get them established in the population. And he's been show, able to show long-term effectiveness using uh, nematodes. So I think there's some potential there. Um, you know, are you gonna get companies investing in something where they may only sell a product once every four or five years? That's a totally different question. So there's a follow-up question that uh, kind of is being led into here. Someone else also asked, do you get a chance to look at and research how well do you think biological treatments to control insects are going to be? So is there anything more in kind of that realm going on that you're seeing? 
So at least on the rootworm front, the challenge has always been um, that there's a lot of biological variables that drive whether or not these natural enemies are going to be effective. Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Or is there enough rain to get things active and to maintain activity into the period and the life cycle when it needs to be there? And so you have trials demonstrating potential successes and when other people would follow up on it in different locations under different weather conditions, et cetera, it turned out to be not very universally effective. And so that's been the challenge. I think the nematode thing on the inoculate front is the thing I've seen lately that comes the closest. You've been hearing anything more on corn borer or some of the other LEPs, Bruce? No, not uh, not uh, really. There's uh, no. It's I know there's some commercial Bavaria um, out there right now. I, you know, and and I mean it does it does it does kill rootworms, but uh, you know I don't I don't have any good data on how well that actually works in a field situation. I know there's been some research that's been going on using things that modify insect behavior that would be more likely to bring the insect in contact with the pathogen, for example. Um, but I think that's still at relatively early stages of development. So I don't know of anything that's you know, widely proposed or widely effective. I think I think the I think you hit on this, Ken, and, and that anytime you're using a biological, whether it's for in disease or insects or nematodes or even weeds to a certain extent, the, the big issue is that that biological organism has its own set of environmental conditions and needs a certain amount of, of host to be effective. So it's it's uh, they don't always they don't always overlap real well. And I know when I was doing research with European corn borer, you get the opposite thing where we would general we would try to do work with artificial infestations, but if the natural population wasn't doing well, our artificial infestations wouldn't do well either. Yeah. You know, so there's some more macro environmental factors that are affecting performance of some of these things. And unfortunately for growers, they want to know they can rely on these products to perform when they really need it. All right, so this goes back to the corn rootworm world. Harmon Wilkes asks about extended diapause. What's kind of the general state we're seeing with that lately? Well, extended diapause is alive and well. Um, we were sort of following its progression through the state. Think of it this way, you had an epicenter in Southwest Minnesota, and there was also one kind of in South Central Minnesota. And over time, those areas spread. And so you got, or, or to say a different way, ongoing selection pressure allowed the, the extended diapause phenomena to be observed in more locations. But as this kind of front was moving eastward, that's when BT rootworm traits came in. And suddenly we lost the ability to track how far that those extended diapause traits uh, had moved and were still moving. And in Nebraska, um, 
And in Iowa, um, they've in general detected more northern corn rootworm populations moving south, and they don't know to what extent that might be related to extended diapause. Um, so yes, extended diapause is out there. We've got some phenomenal cases where we have BT resistant rootworm, northern corn rootworms that show the same level of resistance in the second year. Um, so even if you threw a corn soybean rotation on top of you know, a resistant population, that corn year is still getting hit. Uh, with the same level of resistance the corn, corn population had. That was actually another question that came up again was basically how widespread is ET resistance in northern corpworms? Well, I, I would like to get the help of anybody listening to kind of explore that further. We know of isolated populations that are now higher than they've been in many years. We know we've got extended diapause fields out there where we haven't seen extended diapause in a while. Think of it this way, extended diapause virtually disappeared for about 10 to 15 years as a phenomenon people were observing and now it's back. So if anybody wants to share their insights, I'm sure Bruce and I would welcome any comments they have. And if you've got a particular site that might be fruitful for research, uh, let us know. You know, Ken, uh, with respect to extended diapause and BT resistance and any type of uh, change in behavior, resistance to pesticide, really the, 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 it's hard to detect when populations are low. So it might, it might uh, extended diapause may be widespread and, and has always been widespread. We just don't see it because the populations are low and the same with resistance. And I'm a little concerned as if we have another good year for uh, or populations this year, um, you know, it's real, it's real uh, possible that that resistance uh, is a lot more widespread and, and predominant than we think it might be. It's a good point. I always used to use an iceberg analogy and essentially the size of the iceberg, the size of the population is going to determine how much we see out there. I have uh, one last question and that will wrap us up here. And it's basically, someone was asking when they registered, insect pressure was horrible in 2020. What should I expect in 2021? That's a pretty open-ended question for both of you there. Well, I think Ken kind of hit on it. Uh, um, some of these populations or issues we're going to be able to track within a field from year to year, like corn rootworm, uh, or in an area like corn borer. Um, some of the migrants, we have no idea. And, and, you know, the interesting thing that I'm kind of tracking is that we had that region, we had that cold snap that went all the way down to South Texas. And I'm kind of curious what that did to some of our insects that overwinter down there, like armyworms, cutworms, even cereal aphids. So that made a change the dynamic. So I guess I wouldn't feel too heartbroken if a lot of them froze down there, but uh, we'll see what happens. So you just heard from the question and answer session from our strategic farming, let's talk crops session. What's bugging your corn back in March 3rd? 
both Dr. Ken Osley and Bruce Potter got quite a few questions from the different growers and other folks who attended this webinar. We'll also have another bonus episode following this for soybean cyst nematode in about a week or so. In the meantime, I hope field work is going well for everyone that can get out in their fields right now. It's starting to warm up here in west central Minnesota pretty well, so I know we're going to be out in the field quite a bit here pretty soon. So again, feel free to take us along when you're out driving throughout the day and listen to us and other University of Minnesota podcasts. Thank you for listening to the University of Minnesota's IPM podcast for field crops.